listening to What the Dev, the weekly podcast of ST Times. And now, here's Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of ST Times. I'm here today with James Smith. He's Senior Vice President of Products for the Bugsnag Group at SmartBear, uh, which uh, was uh, done through, through an acquisition. James, thanks for being here today. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, what we're going to be talking about today is uh, these uh, recent uh, outages that we've seen around the industry and and perhaps how uh, organizations could use things like defensive programming uh, to prevent these software bugs from uh, jumping up and, and crashing applications. So let's, let's get started with, uh, James, if we would, you know, some of the the root causes of these things happening. I know we had uh, uh, last summer they were talking about the Facebook API that crashed a whole lot of uh, iOS apps and and some other big ones that uh, ultimately they found out that the API wasn't the problem. It was uh, Facebook's uh, SDK. So, So maybe you can start us off a little bit with, you know, how do organizations prevent that from happening? How do they find it when it happens? How are, how are they letting these things happen? I know that's Three questions in one, but I'll let you uh, let you uh, you know take us down that path. For sure, yeah. There's there's uh, you mentioned the, the the Facebook SDK outage um, earlier this year. There was another another big outage on Android where um, Google updated their WebView SDK that caused a bunch of problems on Android. And then just this week, uh, there was a bug um, on Fastly's system that that caused a huge huge global outages worldwide. So really. Um, there's two paths that can cause these problems. There's kind of code changes or configuration changes. Um, and in these three cases, I think that what's happened is uh, the code has changed that has impacted, or code or configuration has changed that's impacted numerous applications. Now, in the first two examples, the Facebook SDK and the Google WebView SDK, the big problem there was code or configuration that was embedded in your software mm-hmm. changed and cause your software to crash. And so it's like a Trojan horse almost, right? You've got some some code that you didn't write, that you didn't control sitting inside your applications like a ticking time bomb. Uh, and in the case of the Farsi one, obviously we, we don't really know all the details of that one yet, uh, but it was a code change that happened months ago uh, that a particular customer hit a, a, an errant code path or something like that, or a performance um, uh, regression in, in that area that, that caused things to blow up. but. Um, that one obviously had more repercussions because Fastly is at the infrastructure layer for a lot of companies. Um, the the former cases, though, the SDK ones, are, I feel are a little bit more insidious. They're, um, as a developer, you want to write high-quality code. You want to uh, build software and features that your customers can use without problems. And you can do everything in your power to, 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 te- to do good testing, linting, and all the good code-quality best practices. Um, and then it might be someone else's code that blows up your application. So, uh, mm-hmm. yes, there's a lot of techniques to, to protect and prevent that. But uh, I think that a lot of people are only just realizing the impact that these can have. Right. So so let me ask you, when somebody likes a, like a Google or a Facebook uh, updates their uh, API, let's say, or makes a change to some code in an SDK that's embedded in your application, whose responsibility is it to then go in and make sure that the application isn't going to crash because of that change. I mean, obviously, Facebook well, I, everybody else's application uh, to, to make sure that nothing happens. So, 
Yeah, it, it, I think that, you know, it's, it's brand and reputational damage for Facebook and Google to have problems like this. Um, but in the end, you know, I, I, in a former life, I was a CTO of a company and the buck stops there for, for these kind of things. If you're building a product or an application and someone else's code causes your application to crash, you can't just blame the third party. You know, it, you have to do something about it. Now, whether that is um, having ways to pull your versions or roll back versions quickly um, or whether there's ways to disable functionality in your product uh, or whether there's ways to have better monitoring to catch these things early like it the, as the head of technology for a, a company in the end it's up to you to make sure that errant code even if it's not code you wrote uh, is under control and i think it's very easy in these situations to blame blame the third parties and they obviously have a responsibility to do better um, but I actually think there's a lot of things you can do as a as an application team or a, or a tech leadership team uh, to protect against these things the ob obvious first one is to reduce dependencies on third-party code and SDKs like sometimes with the rise of package managers and open source libraries and all this kind of stuff it's very tempting just to install libraries and third-party code for lots and lots and lots of things mm -hmm. but if it's something mission critical is that correct? Do you, should you do that? If it's a product or a company that is new and you don't trust, should you have a better vetting process for this? Now, obviously, Facebook and Google are massive companies that people pretty much trust. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, that's not even good enough. You need to have more techniques on top of that to protect against issues. Mm -hmm. Isn't it really the push for speed that's creating a lot of these problems where you know companies are hearing this drum beaten over and over again you know if you can't move quickly if you can't pivot on a dime you're going to be out of business they're told these draconian horror stories uh you know how much of that is impacting the amount of time organizations can spend making sure that uh, you know their code is is up to snuff yeah it's, it's a trade-off always between uh, quality and speed of roadmap delivery or stability and speed of roadmap de delivery. Um, you can have both. I think, um, without, you know, you don't need to spend rebuild everything from scratch. You know, as a, as a former founder as well, you have to pick your IP. You have to pick what makes you, you and what makes your product unique. Right. And it's a really good idea to lean on third parties to do things that they're very good at. Um, but I think that, um, what you can do is yes, lean on these third parties. But then think about what happens if that third party goes down. So in the case of um, uh, the Facebook outage last year, um, this basically people added Facebook SDK to allow people to authenticate and log in via Facebook on their applications mostly. And what happened was this crash caused anyone, even if you logged in via your email address or you weren't even authenticated to see a crash. Right. So maybe you could build this in such a way that the code paths are protected. Can we turn off? remotely disable the SDK, uh, that, that may only the Facebook users will be affected and everyone else will still be able to access the application. Yeah. Can we put um, uh, exception traps around SDK initialization, uh, which a lot of people don't do because they think, oh, it's initialization. That's <laughs> That won't crash. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, and so put, put exception traps around um, initialization and, and then have a progressive fallback in your product so that you know, rather than just crashing, you pop up a, a little dialogue or a modal saying, hey, sorry, Facebook's SDK is unavailable right now. If you have a login another way, use that. So I think that right. if you are going to leverage third-party services, which is clearly a good idea when, it, when you're innovating, um, just be careful about how you do it and have techniques and approaches to protect against the, the failure of those third-party services. Now, mm -hmm. in the case of the Fastly example, 
that's an infrastructure issue. You kind of, once you're in bed at the infrastructure layer, that's a different story. Uh, but on, at least on the SDK side, when you're embedding SDKs or using third-party APIs, you should have fallbacks. You should have progressive fallbacks that allow your product to mostly work when these services fail. Yeah. We were talking before we came on the air about um, using feature flags and limited releases or what they're calling now progressive delivery to try to limit the number of people who are impacted when uh, a bug is found. But in the, so in the, in the case of Fastly, though, even if they would have rolled it out, let's say, to only 25 people instead of widely, isn't it possible that one of those 25 people could have done the same thing to that application uh, that crashed everybody else's application, uh, even with a limited rollout? So what would the advantage have been uh, to have done it that way? Yeah, it's hard to tell. Companies are, you know, very careful about what information they share after a big outage. But from under, from their reading their postmortem, it seems like uh, one particular customer hit a particular code path uh, from a code change a few months prior. Hmm. And so you're right. By the, if it was a few months ago, probably even if they use feature flags or progressive delivery, they probably already rolled that out to 100% of their customers by now. But what what we've seen in a good approach. Uh, for using feature flags and progressive deliveries is to keep feature flags around for a little while. Even if your customers, your, your feature is rolled out to 100% of your customers, maybe you don't retire that feature flag immediately. Uh, strike a balance between cleaning up that dead code, an old code, and being able to roll back quickly. Because if you have a feature flag around this configuration option or whatever it is, the ch there's a chance that you can spot that issue and then immediately click the rollback button and turn off that feature for everyone and go back to the way that things used to be. Now, um, in this case, uh, that makes a lot more sense than doing a hot fix because in my experience, there's not really a, such a thing as a hot fix. If you're making changes to the code, it needs to go through all of the linting and testing and CI and CD and the whole build process. And in some systems that could take over an hour hours to do and so you're just waiting in the pipeline for, for, for a long time but if you have a feature flag you can turn something off you can do that in a, in a nanosecond so yeah i think in this case again we don't know the full details but if they had a feature flag they could have turned this thing off mm -hmm. so so let me ask you this because i know one of the things that you advocate for is defensive programming strategies so I was wondering maybe if you could just give us a few examples of what that means and how you define defensive programming. So yeah, our product, uh, Bugsnag, uh, we built something that detects crashes and bugs in production and customer deployed environments. And so you know, we're on the other side of it. We're, once things slip through, Bugsnag's there to tell you if something's broken. Right. But really, what I, I see that as a data-driven feedback loop, right? So some customers or a subset of customers are seeing an issue or seeing a bug and so what you can do is you can look at that and then uh feed that information back into a defensive strategy so you know coming back to those sdk examples that we said earlier um if you used feature flagging for example not as a way to do progressive delivery but a way to control which services or sdks are enabled or disabled uh, you could wrap the initialization of the facebook sdk for example in a feature flag if you do that, probably you're always going to have it on. But that allows you then 
by changing one value in a database or one value in an API response to turn off a whole chunk of the code in a deployed application. So if Facebook's API starts processing JSON in the wrong way or whatever it is, like a year ago, you could be like, great, okay, we really love Facebook and we love a lot of customers that love logging in with Facebook, but let's turn it off for now so we don't screw the rest of our customers over. And so I already mentioned the... Um, the protecting initialization as well. Um, a lot of people assume that SDKs are good citizens. Don't ever assume that SDKs are good citizens. SDKs most of the time are not. Now, we have to be experts in this because Bugstag's error monitoring works via SDKs. So, you know, who if the, the crash detector crash crashes, you're in big trouble. So we have to make sure that to be really clean about things. Um, but SDKs, more often than not, especially for companies that aren't super tech savvy like ad tech companies and ad providers they're probably rushed out they're not necessarily built to the highest level of quality so don't trust these sdks to be flawless all of the time wrap initialization wrap any calls in exception handlers have progressive fallbacks and have the ability to turn them off with feature flags they're the, they're the kind of the key defensive upfront and then defensive based on data approaches yep Sounds good. So uh, let me ask you this, with, with the growing complexity of applications where you're using APIs and uh, other uh, third-party SDKs and things of that nature, has monitoring of these systems kind of kept pace with the complexity? Because it seems to me now more than ever, you need to have eyes on everything to see every uh, potential vulnerability or, or loophole somewhere uh, you know, where somebody can get in and do some damage. I think that monitoring is catching up a little bit. I think that historically monitoring came from the infrastructure uh, network layer. A lot of the APM providers started off at that layer and then bolted on customer-centric monitoring later. Mm -hmm. But if you think about things like um, phase rollouts and CICD and, and progressive delivery, code is getting to the customer a lot faster now, and not every customer has the same code. And so right. what I think a lot of the smart... Uh, I'm biased here because this is the approach we're taking, but I think what a lot of the smart monitoring companies are doing is flipping the script and starting from the customer and working back from there. So saying things like, what percentage of my customers are having a good experience? Is it a key subset of my customers, like paying customers, uh, that are seeing good or poor experiences? And then drilling down from there. I also think that dev teams and engineering teams are taking more ownership over their code. Uh, these days, the code that you wrote today, you're probably going to see that code again tomorrow. Once you've shipped something, it's not done. Like You don't press it to a CD anymore and ship it out to Best Buy. Your code that you wrote today, you're going to see tomorrow. Uh, and so I think the ownership of bugs and errors should sit more with the software engineers rather than DevOps and infra teams who don't deeply understand the application. And again, monitoring tools historically haven't done that. So I think the big trends that we need to see is user and customer-centric monitoring and then tool, tools that monitor for the dev team uh, and the engineering team and maybe even the product team rather than the infra team. So I think that's the trend and shift that we're seeing. Right. So I get that for you know companies that are producing outward-facing software. Uh, I think I, I've been hearing about companies that are taking the same approach with the uh, software and applications that their employees are using in-house to perhaps create software that they would then you know, sell to the world. So I think that also perhaps might be helping drive that move uh, towards getting the monitoring earlier on into the, uh, you know, into the cycle. So what, what do you I agree. Think? And in, 
in the end, every, every product has a customer, even if it's an internal customer. Um, and uh, we joke a lot about things like when the CEO sees a bug, uh, then that suddenly becomes the highest priority issue. Well, what if you could have a filter set up or an alert set up that came into Slack that told you when the CEO saw a bug? You could fix that before you get that email, like the, the mythical Jeff Bezos question mark email that he sends when there's an outage or a problem. What if you could proactively capture it and then reach out to the CEO and say, hey, sorry, so this issue is already fixed. So in the end, every product has a customer. It might not be mass market, but even in B2B or internal applications, focusing on the customer experience is always, I think, going to be a better approach. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, James, uh, it looks like we're right up against time. So I just would like to thank you for coming on the What the Dev podcast today. Always good to speak with you. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. It's always fun. My, yep, my pleasure. And uh, to everybody listening in, thanks so much. Again, I'm Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of SD Times. So long for now. <laughs>